Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It's hard to believe we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. Oh, you're telling me. Producing this show week after week is so much fun, but it does require a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. We are highlighting adaptations from Season 9 over at our Originals page, thenextreel.com slash originals. That's the site where listeners can purchase the source material for all of our adapted film discussions. We had a big Robin Hood series this season, looking at nine different versions on screen. Many were likely adapted from Howard Pyle's The Merry Adventures of Robin Hood, including Douglas Fairbanks in Robin Hood, The Adventures of Robin Hood, Disney's Robin Hood, Robin Hood Prince of Thieves, and the 1991 Robin Hood, and Ridley Scott's Robin Hood. Robin and Marion was specifically based on the ballad, The Jest of Robin Hood. And we really don't have too much to say about Robin and the Seven Hoods. We talked Dead Ringers for our David Cronenberg series adapted from Barry Wood and Jack Geisland's novel, Twins. Have you checked out that show? You know, I haven't, but I've heard great things. Two comedies from our Steve Martin series were adaptations, Pennies from Heaven from the BBC series, and The Lonely Guy from the book by Bruce J. Friedman. The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas was part of our Colin Higgins series, adapted from the Broadway musical. Spike Lee brought us Black Klansman from Ron Stallworth's memoir. And we looked at a trio of John Le Carey adaptations, The Spy Who Came In From the Cold, The Little Drummer Girl, and Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. Plus, all three movies in our Agnieszka Holland series were based on books, Europa Europa, In Darkness, and Spore. La Caja Fall and its remake, The Birdcage, both came from Jean Poiré's original play. We also talked about Arsenic and Old Lace and Charade in our Gary Grant series. All of these were based on other material, and it is all available on our Originals page, thenextreel.com slash originals. Every book purchased supports the podcast. Get the full list of adaptations we've covered and start your next read today at thenextreel.com slash originals.
I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to the next reel. When the movie ends... Our conversation begins. Bamboozled is over. It's time to talk about a family show that takes place on a watermelon patch. I want a show that will make headlines. The Huxtables, Cosby, a genius, revolutionary. But we can't go down that road again. The network does not want to see Negroes on television unless they are buffoons. Have you ever thought about just quitting? I have a contract. The only way I get out of that is if I get fired. And that is what I intend to do. I know you are familiar with menstrual shows. Variety shows. Like in Living Color. Right, right, right. That was dope. Man, Tan. The new millennium menstrual show. We're going to need a little more money for this. This could be bigger than Friends, Ally McBeal, even my boys Amos and Andy. Yeah. You're putting white actors in blackface? We're using black actors with blacker faces. This fall. Right on, man. Yeah, great show. You won't believe what's coming to your television. Sleepin' Eat and Mantan are lazy and unemployed. Do your stuff. But we are certainly not saying anything about the entire African-American community. What's sweeping the nation? And what's coloring? The way you see the world. Yo, we can't let this injustice go by, man. Not this time, man. You know what I'm saying? Nah, man. You know what I'm saying? You know what I mean? You know what I'm saying? Uh, okay, Andy, bamboozled. I have to say, this is my first time getting through this movie, uh, and I've I have now watched it. I think collectively, I've probably watched it twice. Uh, mostly, I watched it, and then I watched pieces of it. But I watched a lot of pieces of it, and now I think you could say I watched it twice. What a movie, Spike! Yeah, this was one where he really was. Uh, not in the narrative uh, frame of mind like he was doing some of his other films like Malcolm X that are, you know, a little more straightforward. I mean, certainly there's still, you know, Spike Lee has a point of view and he's getting it across. Uh, but this is just like, this is Spike Lee having a point and getting it across uh, in, the, in telling this story. Uh, it's it's a really fascinating look at media at uh at fame how how money can change things um uh, you know how the portrayal of the african-americans and culture and uh you know how that has uh, been treated in the course of of the history of media and just society uh, it's it, it's such an interesting look at all of that and just the the way that culture defines uh, what it means to be an African-American and, and how people react and, and take it on and, and see African-Americans. I find it just a full-on gripping film. I ne- It never lulls. It's always interesting. There's a lot to talk about in here. And uh, Spike has a lot of messages. I, I find it to be one of his strongest films. New York Times, uh, in the original review of this film uh, opens with, this is the most innovative social satire ever brought to the American screen. What do you think makes this movie successful as a satire? That's an interesting question. I, I think it starts because it's it's the show about a TV producer making a satire, <laughs> which I think, uh, it, it, I think right there, you're getting a really good uh, frame for the story, the structure of the story. You have this producer who 
is really unhappy where he is. He wants to get himself fired. He comes up with this over-the-top satire that is just ridiculous that should never have, should never happen. Um, and the, you know, the white culture as personified by his boss, Dunwitty, uh, played by Michael Rappaport, completely latches onto it and it becomes this huge success. And of course, it drives uh, our uh, protagonist, the TV producer, Pierre Delacroix, uh, uh, to kind of uh, uh, just go along with it. It's, it is making this satire of the old shows. And by doing so, um, it, it becomes a satire of how media portrays things and, and how uh, popularity through media can kind of change the perspective of people as they start latching onto things. I just think that the structure of it being about a satire uh, makes it that much more successful as a satire. I, I think Lee's approach to this as a satire and uh, and one of the things that I think makes it most compelling as satirical content is just how far he goes with everything, right? On the scale of, um, you know, normal to offensive, normal to off the charts, right? Normal to shattering sort of cultural barriers. Uh, he goes all the way every time. And he opens the film by giving us the structure out front, right? I mean, he tells us with Webster's definition of the word satire where we're going with this movie. And uh, he does it through the voice of uh, Damon Wayans playing this character who is um, – so clearly playing this role that has shattered his identity as a black man, right? He is playing the whitest of white guys uh, named Pierre Delacroix. And he's paired with Michael Rappaport, who is playing the blackest of black guys, but he's a white guy, right? And so the way their language works, the way they talk to each other, Rappaport's whole speech about saying, don't think I don't know, uh, you know, I married a black woman and I have two biracial kids, I'm allowed to use this kind of language, right? I mean, it's just so over the top. Every turn is over the top. Even when we get to the extremists in Mau Mau, it is over the top, the big black African, right? The, it, it is, uh, everything's over the top. By the time he gets us to the final scene, and, and I would say that network homage at the end, we're at that the pinnacle of Spike Lee activist filmmaking. And is this the ramp off of which he jumped to earn the reputation that he did in, <laughs> in Hollywood for, for uh, <laughs> like being who he is as a filmmaker? Um, because I feel like, and, and I was listening to an interview with, a, with him today, he said that uh, I, I think I'm going to make this movie and people are going to absolutely love it or they're going to absolutely hate it. And now that the film is out, I think I was right. Well, he certainly, you know, he's, he's a filmmaker who has a lot of anger and he expresses his opinions about uh, the way that he views the injustices in the world uh, through cinema. And I think that's what makes him really interesting. And, and sometimes I tire of his uh, kind of just his rhetoric. And I feel like, you know, he's, he says a lot of the same things. Um, but that doesn't mean I, I 
don't appreciate what he's doing in his films. Uh, and I think there's a there is a little bit of a difference there. Well, I think that's really true because he's when you hear him talk about anger and and, you know, and he really resonates against, you know, the the terms around like, uh, are you calling me an angry black man? Like you see him really get his ire up when when he is saddled with that, because he I I, you know, from listening to him, he is incredibly precise about the things that he is angry about. And those are his messages. But in general, he feels like he is um, he's just pointed in those things. And otherwise, he's kind of a chill guy. Don't take him. Don't talk to him about the Knicks. Right. You know, one of the things that he was angry about before this film came out was when Quentin Tarantino made Jackie Brown and Mm -hmm. riddled the language in that with a lot of uses of the N word. And there was a lot of criticism about how much that word was used in the in that film. And, you know, Tarantino defended it, saying, you know, this is how these these characters talk and all that. And and the actors like Samuel L. Jackson clearly say it in in the film a lot. And it it feels like part of their character, but it also feels like in that particular film, as much as I love it, it was a little overabundant. Um, And and that was something that Spike Lee really gravitated to. And he talked about how much it bothered him and and you can see I, I couldn't help but when I when I first watched this uh, I actually saw this in theaters when it came out I, I couldn't help but feel like Spike Lee almost came up with this whole story as a reaction to Tarantino and the use of of the n-word in Jackie Brown it just felt like uh, and certainly it's even brought up as an addressed in the film which was an interesting little note yeah. I thought that it comes up so it, it's it's interesting how it it felt very much reactionary for him well, it certainly feels like a conversation that they're having using the language of their films, right? Like, clearly this was a callback. Yeah, right. um, you know, I forgot to ask you that as somebody who's seen the film multiple times and certainly has seen it, you know, 19 years ago when it came out, how did it age for you watching it today versus, you know, your memory of it over the years? I feel like it actually uh, aged really well, and it felt just as relevant today. And that's, I think, a, a real strong sign of of the way that, uh, you know, he tells his stories, <laughs> kind of a sad sign of the state of the world that nothing feels like it's changing. And how prescient yeah. he is, film over film over film. Absolutely. I mean, there are definitely points in the story that just feel uh, as relevant today as they did mm-hmm. in 2000. And I mean, this is a film as much about media. And I think you actually, I can't remember, I saw a quote that I think you had put down in our notes somewhere about how uh, you could almost change the African-American um, characters in the story to any other minority in in America or in the world, and you could tell the same story and uh, about anyone else who's been marginalized or dehumanized, really, in the way that they're told. Here's the quote. I found it. You can make this exact same film about women, gay people, Native Americans, Hispanics, about any people that have been dehumanized in cinema and television. Yeah, that was Lee on, you know, credit where credit's due. That was Lee on yeah, Charlie yeah. Rose. Yeah. Okay, yeah. And I, I think that's a really interesting point, that this film is about African Americans, but it could be about any of these other people and how they are portrayed in the media. And I find that a very enlightening and and sharp point that I think is, again, as relevant today as it was then. Yeah, right. And and you you think about it, it's fascinating, like looking at the way he he ends up building this story, because as soon as you obviously his language uh, in this film is sort of the cultural language is a language of race, because that's what he lives and experiences. But once I read that and start going back and watching this movie again, just how 
how easy you could uh, sort of transform the film and make it a film about women and make it a film about, uh, you know, Hispanics or homosexuals or I mean, we've uh, I, I feel like it is that's one of the things that makes this film, I think, universal uh, in a way beyond the race. It's why a guy like me can feel like I relate to this film because there are so many stories of marginalized groups that even I have a uh, maybe a, a closer, more intimate relationship with that I can sort of empathize, uh, e- even though I don't have the the that particular racial experience. I don't have the ancestry of slavery. I I can relate to this film. I can relate to the family in this film and Jada Pinkett Smith's character and and the the sort of crossroads that she is between dealing with the um, the in- incredible sort of emotional and political abundance that's going on between this person that she cares deeply about and her own brother. Uh, Those are things that I think Lee is able to uh, weave into this film in a way that is relatable. It's just like Do the Right Thing. I had the same feeling that this was a movie that was about family that I can attach myself to in a way that makes it appealing years later beyond the, the more obvious racial structure. I don't know. Does that make sense? It does make sense, and it, it does make me ask uh, if if uh, Delacroix is our protagonist of the story. I mean, we're certainly following him through the bulk of it. Mm-hmm. Um, is uh, is he how how does that work for you with him as a protagonist? I mean, he's an interesting protagonist because he is the one who seems unhappy with his lot at this network, and you know he, the stories that he's pitching just don't feel like they're really very interesting and so he comes up with this crazy thing pushes it and then is enjoying the successes from it uh, only to kind of uh, see it lead to his own downfall as we kind of watch uh, the film and how it ends uh, in a very interesting and and uh, I, I suppose you could say unexpected but I think you could also say um, completely um, inevitable right I mean that's exactly yeah, how right. it's how it's meant to end um is it is it too difficult to have a character like that as the protagonist of our story or in context of the story huh. that we're getting does it end up working out fine I I need you to talk more about that what is it the, why would you use the word difficult well because he's a difficult protagonist to really attach to and I guess you know in, in the context of you know screenwriting saving yeah. the cat as your protagonist uh, you know he is a character who I mean, do we like Delacroix right from the start? I mean, I feel like I kind of like him, but he he starts going down this this road with this crazy show and seems to really be getting into it and you know later in the film. And I just find myself liking him less and less, as interesting as I continue to find him. Like I never get bored of this character. I always find him really very interesting and uh kind of exciting to watch, even if as the as my kind of emotional core of the story, it, it he never is. So credit to Damon Wayans for coming up with a, a character and a way to play this character that has me feeling such like so conflicted over it when when the movie started i didn't like him at all i thought it was too over the top right it was just too much it's and a pretty I didn't, big yeah 
it's it's a big swing to to find a way around this particular character. And so I I was putting a lot of the burden of my impression of this character on Wayans and his choices and the affectation that he brought to his voice. I just couldn't I couldn't figure it out. It was really as we entered into that sort of second third act as you know when you talk about like his intensity is amping up around you know right before he starts to realize that things have come off the rails um is uh, i started getting finding my affinity to his portrayal of this character and only on that second viewing did i start to actually figure out like that character wouldn't have worked if he wasn't part of the satire if he wasn't over the top like everything else if he didn't make that um make his voice as lampoonishly buffoonishly white as he possibly could that would not have played and so um you know from from his portrayal i i found myself really growing to love it and and found that by the end of the film i feel like he had earned the finale right he had earned his climax to your point though structurally yeah he's not a guy that you ever really like but i feel like we get to hitch our own particular wagons to his struggle even if we don't like who he is what he is trying to do becomes the thing that allows us to attach to him at least that's what it was for me like even if i didn't like him it was i felt like i was with Sloan. I was with Sloan and her uh, uh, conflict, uh, not knowing whether she should, you know, go with this guy that she clearly loves and admires, um, even though she doesn't like what he's doing. Uh, so I, I guess I stand with Sloan, and that made him, his efforts more. Uh, not I didn't like them, but I could at least appreciate what he was trying to do. Yeah, yeah. No, and I'm I'm just kind of asking. I, I don't think it's necessarily uh, a, there's a right or wrong way for that uh, character to have been portrayed as the protagonist of the story. But I do think that it it leads me to ask. I, I think a, a question that I think is a pretty important question when it comes to Spike Lee and films like this when he makes them. Who is he making movies like this for? This is not the sort of movie that your average moviegoer is going to gravitate to. I think the average moviegoer had a hard enough time with uh, Do the Right Thing and trying to figure out, you know, I mean, as we saw in our uh, looking at the Amazon reviews last week, I, I think people just, some people just have a really difficult time looking at a film like this that that is going to have a lot of, uh, ask you a lot of questions and ask you to really kind of think about things as opposed to just sitting down and watching a movie and just kind of two hours of, of turning your brain off for some entertainment. Um, I, you know, this is definitely not that sort of film. This is not shut your brain off and just watch this for kicks sort of movie. So, uh, so who's it for? It's for us. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Spike. Thanks, Spike. Uh, you know, hearing him talk about uh, how he thinks about critics uh, doesn't have a an incredibly high opinion, but he does always come around to just the, the, the things that he cares about and the things that he is angry about and the things that he feels like he needs to, to show up about and to be present for. And so, um, you know, I think there's probably um, – 
as loath as I am to sort of speak for him, uh, there, it feels to me like there is resonance in him making billboards for his own sort of positions, uh, that he would love it if you could drive down the street and see the movie all in a flash and understand his perspective and see that mirror and, and get how it relates to you right away. Uh, it, it's, it's more fascinating for me to listen to how much he cares about maybe the, the media stuff, like the developing power through mass media and communications as a, a greater threat to the populace and even than the the racial stuff, right? And, um, you know, some of the stuff that he really cares the most about when you in this film, as he's talking about it, presenting the film in lectures, he says, you know, ISIS, he says, like, I feel like I, I, I feel like I predicted that, like that was the execution scene in this when Mau Mau executed the uh, Saving Glover is on live TV. I feel like that is a thing that, um, that that we really need to come to terms with like that's that has always been the destination of consolidating power through media communications through the power of mass media and what it can do to people um so i i know that that doesn't answer your question about who is he making films for but i i feel like i'm closer than ever to understanding at least why he's making films well, and that speaks to the artist, right? I mean, that speaks to a person who has a perspective and and uh, has a medium that they like to use uh, to kind of get that message out. And I think Spike Lee is very exceptional at kind of crafting these stories and getting them out into the world. I do think that um, there are times where I, I watch films like this and I go, I, I don't know. Uh, it, it definitely is for me and it's definitely for people who enjoy having a a slice of cinema that can give them a little more to kind of think about and talk about. I, I definitely think there's a lot of that here. Um, would I ever see my in-laws watching this? No, I don't think so. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, you know. The, okay, so we, we now have the start of a Venn diagram. Andy right. and Pete, Andy Andy's in-laws, it's a circle that doesn't touch. Right. Two circles that don't touch. No, uh, it touches in some places, some places. We can enjoy certain movies, but definitely not this one. Not over this the, uh, maybe the whole catalog of Spike Lee. Oh, I can only Inside imagine. Man. Inside Man. Inside Man. There you okay. go. Okay. All right. There, there's our Spike Lee overlap. <laughs> <laughs> and that might be it. That might be it. I think some of the elements that Spike has chosen to portray in this, uh, I, I find uh, deeply touching from afar. And one of them that really stuck out to me was the blackface recipe and how he portrayed that both cinematically and how the actors sort of, in, you know, say, roughly embraced going through the ritual of creating the blackface. Uh, how did that experience hit you? Watching uh, our two uh, actors that uh, that are portraying this, Savion Glover and, and Tommy Davidson, as Man Ray and Womack, who become the characters Sleep and Eat and Mantan, watching them kind of go through this ritual of making the blackface, of, of taking the corks and burning them and mashing them down once they're kind of burned and then mixing with water and making this paste and then and rubbing it all over their face was uh it was just i mean it was soul crushing every time i watched them do it and i think that was the intention of just seeing how 
uh, kind of just demeaning this becomes how how false the whole thing is and it just was like really difficult especially because you could just see it on their faces you know these these actors and i felt like watching it it's not just the the characters uh man ray and womack mm-hmm. that are having a difficult time doing that but it's also you know uh, savion and tommy having a difficult time doing this because it's just such a, a just an awful thing so i I found it to be, and we keep doing it, like we keep seeing them um, applying it throughout every time we're getting ready for another show. It becomes this ritualistic thing that just reeked of uh, just putting these people down and just crushing them uh, to make uh, to make comedy for for other people. It was it was really just devastating. It, it the tone changes of the film when we go into this moment as an example and a couple of other times it, it it does this as well but it changes almost to a documentary right where we have Jada Pinkett Smith's voice right we have Sloane's voice but I'm honestly not sure if it's Sloane or if it's Jada Pinkett Smith who is explaining the ritual as we watch Tommy and Savion do it and and I I am intentionally using the actors right the performers names here because I felt like I was taking a step out of the film and these were three African American people who were going through this ritual as a means of performance art and we're going to watch it from a little bit higher level. We're going to watch them as human beings do this to themselves. And it's sort of a break from the narrative. Uh, and I found the whole experience incredibly powerful. Did you notice how you were feeling as you were watching that? Oh, I just, I felt uncomfortable. I felt gross. It just, you know, sick to my stomach. Just all of that. It just, everything felt um, just really terrible. Really, really terrible. Yeah. Well, and and Lee says that uh, every time they shot that and went through that process, it was a number of times, and they were, he said they were, I mean, those guys were crying going through that process. Like, it is, it was incredibly uh, difficult to do that, but uh, I, I think it, it adds an incredibly powerful element to the film. I mean, it was, it was stunning. Does it make you look back on other films that we've talked about, like Trading Places, or even more recently yeah. Silver Streak, and and some of the uses of blackface in those films, which were, I mean, seventies and eighties? Yeah. Uh, and does it feel? Does it make you feel like, ugh, man, it, it just even less just feel comfortable about that? Yeah, and and you know, I made that note that, that this watching this movie. And sort of the sobriety with which he approaches some of this material, it makes me frustrated at how all these old films that marginalize, right, or that lampoon marginalized groups are just let off the hook for that misrepresentation. And it's just we let it off the hook because it was old and we didn't understand. But you know what? Like, it wasn't that old. Uh, And watching those films in particular, I think, really demonstrate how disconnected white filmmakers were from what that experience really was until you until Spike Lee sits down and makes the actors go through the process or asks the actors to go through that process i think it's uh, uh i think you 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 just really exemplify how deeply you don't misunderstand it frankly it makes me frustrated about the little person being thrown in the barrel in uh, foul play like that that's another one of those examples where it's used just as a laugh because of who that person is and i still don't think we should let him off the hook 
It's it's just too careless. Well, it's interesting in both cases, uh, Trading Places and Silver Streak. Uh, I, I feel like they're only getting away with it at the time because of the involvement of African-American actors, Eddie yeah. Murphy or Richard Pryor. Right. And with the other people. And so, but still, it just, even then, I just feel like it just, I don't know, now I'm just finding it just kind of a sickening shift. And I just find so much less. uh, I wonder how long that, I wonder how long that feeling will stick for us, you know, like the, the sort of experience of being more aware, like you bring up Eddie Murphy and Richard Pryor and I feel like now when I think about them, they're like they're the absolution Americans, right? They just they're there so that we can get away with a dumb historical joke. It's it is more hurtful tonight, certainly than it was watching them. And it was awkward then. Next up on the show, Soul Man. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Whatever you want to do, man. Guilty pleasure is oh, guilty pleasure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Uh, okay, so yeah, it's so that's a really interesting aspect that I, I find yeah. really powerful. Other interesting cinema tricks that he used to great effect. How did you feel about the use of direct repetition of seconds? It's an interesting thing. I did that sort of thing in film school with <laughs> film projects of mine uh, because I found it to Spike be... Do you think Leaf watched those movies? I, probably. Is that where you got I'm sure. That? I'm sure. You, looking at the influences of Spike <laughs> Lee, I'm sure I'm one of them. <laughs> but it, it's, an odd, it's an odd choice. And I do find it's an interesting way to emphasize a point. And he does it a number of times throughout this film. Um, I, Eureka! It, oh my God! Eureka! Oh my God! Yeah, it it throws me because I'm I'm not expecting it. You just don't ever see that in film, you know, unless yeah. unless it's um designed to very specifically point it out. And I guess by doing it, that is what he's doing. He's emphasizing it. He's and he's he's pulling us out, and it becomes less of a real world story and more of a a story of cinema and i guess that's what i feel like spike lee is doing at times is he's he's telling a story that that with a style that makes you kind of you're reminded with things like that that this is a cinema cinematic story this isn't something happening in the real world and i feel like perhaps that helps uh, separate it from uh you know just as a way to continually remind you this is a satire you know, this isn't something that is a real story. It's something that Spike Lee does. Another shot, a camera trick that he does pretty frequently. And I don't know when he started doing this. I, I know I've seen it in a number of them, but it's where right. he has an actor on a dolly and then the camera and the dolly with the actor are both moving backward through the world. The But the actor isn't moving at all. There's no walking. There's nothing moving on their body. And it ends up feeling like they are just floating through their, their space that they're in. And it's a really fascinating trick that he has been doing for, you know, quite a while now. And I can't help but feel like it really separates that character from the story. We have this at the very beginning of the film when Delacroix is giving his his opening narration and setting the stage for the story. He's floating through his apartment as we are kind of watching this shot, as he's kind of talking and setting everything up. 
And it really does separate him from his own world, and it separates us from the realities of the story. And it creates this construct that I feel like he's constantly reminding us that this is a construct. This isn't a real thing. It's a really interesting way to kind of remind people that. Yeah, I think so, too. It is the uh, legendary Spike Lee double dolly shot. And um, in terms of how long he'd been doing it, the first one was Mo Better Blues in 1990. He used it in Jungle Fever in 91, Malcolm X, 92, Crooklyn, 94, Clockers, 95, Girl 6, uh, 96, He Got Game, 98, Summer of Sam, 99, Bamboozled, obviously, 2000, 25th Hour in 2002, Inside Man, 2008, with Denzel, uh, Red Hook Summer, 2012. Um, and I'm pretty sure, I don't know, at least uh, at least the list doesn't look like it's been updated. And I don't remember if he's if he did one in, say, Black Klansman. It is in Black Klansman. It it's is? At the okay. end. It's, yeah, it's at the end. Oh, right, right, right. Yeah. Yep. yep. I think right, right toward the very end of the film. So it, it has become a Spike Lee thing um, from very early in his career. Uh, and it's a very cool shot. It is. It's it's great. I love that it's something he's continued playing with uh, because I think it does emphasize the cinematic constructs of the stories that he's telling. I mean, he already is doing that with some really unique camera shots throughout both of these films so far. And and despite the the quality of the image in this film, because well, I'm sure we'll talk about kind of the 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 cameras that he used to film it, but there still are some really interesting uh, angles that he chooses to use. There's some great crane shots moving up and down through space and i i just feel that he has a real interesting grasp on how to portray the world in this way that just becomes very uh very cinematic always in its telling i i think now is as good a time as any for you to explain to me the equipment that he used to shoot this because i'm telling you it felt just like uh the cameras i was using in my college news class well, it very likely was. In fact, he may have used the exact one. Who knows? Um, he was filming this. The bulk of the film was shot with Sony VX1000 cameras, which is a mini DV uh, digital camera. And the, so the quality is uh, pretty poor. Yeah. And um, But what that allowed him to do is use a lot of different cameras, getting a lot of um, shots at the same time. So he would get masters, two shots, close-ups all at the same time with multiple cameras running to capture as many different angles as he could pot- possibly want in the editing room. And then when it comes time to the Mantan New Millennial uh, Minstrel Show, he filmed all of those on Super 16. And it's it's a very interesting way to kind of depict the real world on this really cruddy a DV quality uh, format, which looks even worse when it's blown up and you're watching it on the big screen in a movie theater. It looks really terrible. Really bad, yeah. And then to have the the over-the-top kind of nonsensical world that they're portraying on this watermelon plantation in the Mantan Minstrel Show, uh, you're getting this in, it still isn't 35 millimeter, but it looks a lot better when you're shooting in Super 16. It has a much cleaner, much more vibrant colors pop sort of look that really stands out. And I can't help but feel 
that. I mean, sure, I'm sure there's some financial reasons to shoot the bulk of it on mini DV, where you know you could get all those different cameras running at the same time and shoot move quick. But then to shoot the the TV show on something that had so much more pop, I think it's a really interesting uh, decision. Well, and it really was at the crest of the wave of filmmakers deciding whether or not mini DV was going to be their great next format. (laughs) (laughs) So many. You know, it was Spike and then Tarantino and then Scorsese. The mighty have fallen. (laughs) I think think Nolan and Fincher were in talks. Totally, totally. And, you know, can you imagine if uh, the Irishman... Could I want to see super mini DV by now. <laughs> I want to see Nolan shooting on mini DV and then blowing it up to play at the yes. IMAX screens. <laughs> Dunkirk mini DV. <laughs> <laughs> it's detailed. Everything looks like melting wax. <laughs> oh, this bit is funny to one percent of our population. <laughs> okay. Well, I, I found it incredibly effective. And again, because it makes that statement about like the, the production design and the choices that go into how you shoot it continues to make that statement about, uh, you know, mass media, You're like making the statement about mass media by shooting cheap. Yeah, it's a practical uh, choice for him to be able to get all kinds of coverage all in one take and, and uh, decrease, you know, his shooting time, because I know it was difficult to get this thing funded. But uh, it it also continues to make that statement about the power of mass media and what people will watch. Right. And and I think that is um, I think that's a great it's a great way to to hammer home that particular point. No, very much so. Yeah, it just it it creates a very clear delineation between Uh, the real world, the kind of this crummy looking real world and this, uh, this TV show, which is so vibrant and rich and exciting. And I can't help but think it's, uh, even funnier when you have, uh, when uh, Delacroix is first pitching the show and he's talking to Dunwitty about these, these variety shows and, and the, the, you know, the types of variety shows there are. And he even brings up in living color. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Which is really funny because it was a show that he had been a part of. Yeah. And here you have him bringing it up. And this is a show that is just like living color compared to the yeah. real world. Yeah, right. Yeah. And interestingly, In Living Color was a show with all black actors except for Jim Carrey. And so is Mau Mau. It's like the same thing. Yeah. Right. Uh, that the the use of extremists, uh, I, I think, made for another. There are a couple of more little, like just racial points that that felt like they were particularly incisive. Uh, one was in Mau Mau at the very end after the execution. They are all executed by cop, and it's uh, Mau Mau. This extremist group, this black activist group, is made up of all uh, black uh, members except for I think his name is Steve, the white guy. And that's, that's the perfect name to give. Right. It's Steve, the white guy. And he uh, at the end, 
there is no reason that he is not dead during this massive exchange of gunfire in the alley. But uh, the the final sort of gruesome punchline to that particular visual, horrendous visual joke is that Steve is gets up and is completely unharmed while everybody else has been just slaughtered by the police. And he's screaming, shoot me. Like, why am I still alive? Shoot me. Uh, And uh, it is just, it's just crushing, like solar plexus crushing to watch the way that sequence was executed. It's really interesting. I also, um, the Mau Mau, that particular group, I could not help but feel like I was getting references to network. uh, the oh, the yeah. movie, not uh, yeah. the show, but uh, you know the movie that we we've talked about on the show earlier. Um, I, I felt like the you know the the I can't remember what it is, but it's like the uh, um, Liberation Army that that Faye Dunaway is talking right. to. Um, that felt very similar, you know, just kind of like this this edgy group that ends up kind of like uh, creating quite a bit of uh, conflict in the story. It well, felt there, there are a lot of parallels to Network, right? When you look at, oh, the, at, so. at his, the influences uh, from Network and A Face in the Crowd, uh, like these, uh, Network in particular, right, the strongest images from Networks he, he pilfers for this show, right? I'm mad as hell. I'm not going to take it anymore. I have had enough. And Saving Glover falls back with the camera uh, in the foreground, and he falls back on the ground in the spotlight. And that is a direct ape of... Uh, of uh, Network. Network's final suicide scene, right. um, which is extraordinary. Um, we get it a number of times in in this movie um, that I think are they're very powerful in this context too. Right? It didn't feel cheap to me. Not at all. No, it felt like a just like the way that he used some uh, bits from Night of the Hunter in yeah, Do the Right Thing. Right, right. They felt just like a, a cinematic storyteller who knew how to make appropriate homages. And in context right. of the story he's telling here, uh, he pulled just the right pieces to make another point about the way that media kind of uh, is this. Uh, um, uh, this tool that that becomes so powerful and uh, affecting with people. Well, look at how he handles advertising. We get this great but brief bit that I found incredibly striking uh, when talking about uh, advertising. We see some, as the show airs for the first time, we see who the sponsors are. And one of them is this uh, company that makes a pill that's a competitor to, to Viagra. And the tagline is, Viagra doesn't work on Black Johnson's. Our scientists have invented this other drug that's good <laughs> for Black people's erections. And uh, I, I, that was as heart-wrenching as everything else is, watching that now, today, in this fabric that has completely torn truth asunder, uh, and and we're constantly dealing with exactly that. Yeah, now, you know, are you saying silver in your bloodstream will cure coronavirus? Yes, I'm saying that for, I mean, it's just absurd, <laughs> the kinds of things that are that we're seeing right now. And again, there's Spike Lee, who has, has already done it in the Black Johnson's joke. Well, you know, the advertising is an interesting uh, bit of the film, too, because I feel like that's an opportunity for him to, to uh, uh, in addition to the Mau Mau's and kind of just the other characters throughout the film, 
he's getting an opportunity to look at a lot of the different varieties of people within the African-American community. And uh, like you have this other commercial that is for, what is it? The rocket? Uh, the bomb. The, the bomb, right. Yeah. The bomb. And uh, just like, uh, I, I, I can't help but see things like that and feel like he has a sharp eye on a lot of different aspects of culture and he's poking at all of them like nothing is safe he's going after a lot of things you have the tommy hilfiger reference the character here and and kind of all of the the conflicts that had gone gone about tommy hilfiger and the clothing line also i thought it was very interesting that he has a moment where you have this award ceremony and delacroix is accepting an award matthew modine is presenting it and then he calls matthew modine up and uh mistaking him for someone else anyway but then he gives him the award saying oh no you're so great you deserve this and i couldn't help but feel that that was another thing that spike lee was doing a callback uh there was a, a i think it was the golden globes ving rames won best actor in a miniseries where he portrayed don king i believe and uh and he felt that Jack Lemon's portrayal in 12 Angry Men was much better than his and so he called Jack Lemon up to the stage and gave him the award and I couldn't help but feel I can't remember exactly what it was that um that uh, Delacroix said on stage or in the narration there but you know it's like I'm, I'm you know I'm the this will this will certainly work to get me more work because I'm I'm being yeah. the good little black man or something like right. that I can't remember exactly but he has some something that he says there and I'm like gosh I wonder if that's Spike Lee um digging on Ving Rames and what happened in that award ceremony um looking at it as uh, a, a way to kind of promote himself by accidentally promoting someone else. I, I don't know. It's just, I, I couldn't help but think that Spike Lee is is pulling from all of these different sources. Well, I think so too. And I think if you hear any sort of frustration, people who don't really like Spike Lee, I think one of the the common sort of apples on that tree is that his nods are too literal or too obvious. Uh, and I, I don't, I mean, for me, it works actually quite well. And and it's it, it ends up being sort of multi-layered and, and complex, even if on the surface it looks, you know, it, it looks to be that kind of a callback. For me, it, it actually works perfectly. Um, well, partially because it, like when he's talking, like you get the feeling that there's this other stereotype that he's pointing at, which is that, you know, uh, when black people look at white people, they all look the same or, you know, when, and I think that that applies to everybody, that white people think everybody who's not white looks the same, right? That's that's the very common refrain. Uh, but but I love that he's that he's sort of poking at that by <laughs> By making Matthew yeah. Modine and Matt Dillon, who kind of look alike anyway. Like, <laughs> I get that. <laughs> you were great in Rumble Fish. And there's something about Mary. Yeah, right. Know, it's so funny. No, it, it's it's a really interesting uh, little element. And, I, you know, I mean, your point, I think, is a, a good one, though, um, because I think, I mean, look at the, what some people thought. I mean, Roger Ebert, who I think has been a big proponent of Spike Lee, I mean, he gave it two out of four stars, saying that Spike Lee was raising important issues but handled them poorly. The film is a satirical attack on the way TV uses and misuses African-American, African people images, but many people leave the theater thinking Lee has misused them himself. And I think 
I think that ties into this idea that he, he's throwing so much at the screen and so many topics that he is tackling that to some people it it ends up feeling like you know he's it's it's a mess there's so much stuff that he's doing here that it just it doesn't feel as cohesive as it should whereas i feel like he's throwing all this stuff in there because in in ways all of this ends up relating to the media and the way that society sees African Americans and uh, through its portrayals of uh, through the art, through everything, it just all kind of ends up tying together. I, I found it all to be kind of very cohesive as I watch it. What do you think of their, of his use of the uh, fetish objects, right? The historical objects, the bank and the, you know, all of the statuary. And I think it's incredibly interesting that it becomes something that ends up really kind of burying Delacroix over the course yeah. of the film. He ends up having more and more of this, uh, this you know, this black art that is just all around him. And there are some shots late in the film where he's pretty small in the frame and the camera's like behind some of these objects. And it really does look like he's literally buried in these things. And I can't help but feel for a character that is so non-black who is so kind of um i almost feel like he's identityless even though he kind of identifies as an african-american i can't help but feel that delacroix is just a very surface level you know just because he happens to look that way but i just don't mm. feel like he fits you know i mean he's the guy who's writing these all these uh, very uh, milk toast type of programs before right. this one and so I, I, I found that one, they work as a great reminder that this is, uh, you know, a very relevant story because this stuff is all, you know, largely within the last hundred years where you're seeing this proliferation of all these different objects. Right. And I don't know, I just felt it was really, um, uh, important to help define this character who does kind of get buried by it and, and, uh, you know, uh, destroyed by it in the end right right that was an interesting turn too because i almost i i had this it was a surprise to me because i had this feeling that either um you know as he starts slamming all these things around and throwing them on the ground pulling them off the shelf that he's either going to you know that, that the movie was going to play out as it did right he's to use your words he gets buried by them uh or he was going to somehow find his inner black man which would have been uh sort of a betrayal to the satire uh but there were so many little hints that, you know, as so many other black people in the movie are telling him you've forgotten who you are. Even the white guy, his boss, is telling him that you don't know who you are, right? You don't know your identity. And it's the fact that he was identityless that actually tore him apart, that he was never on a journey to find out who he was. He was – his journey was very different than that. And I think that's a – that was a, a surprise that can be not – terribly rewarding if that's not what you expect or it's what you're looking for. And I can see why that would cause some consternation for folks. But I do think visually it was super interesting the way Lee shoots all of these goodies in the room, all of these fetish objects throughout the course of the film. There are breaks where we actually get these smash close-ups on, you know, these elements, right? If it's an arm going up into the little bank or the face at an odd sort of tilt. Uh, and then I go watch Knives Out. And it's like the same thing. It is a beautiful use of these objects to build horror in the, 
the subsequent section of the movie. And, uh, you know, we talk about Spike Lee using images from other films. Uh, the strategy behind using statuary, I think, is a long running one in the history of, of film. But these two films are like two crystal clear data points that tie exactly to one another. And I love it. Yeah. Really great. You you brought up the the uh, use of of um, uh, aside from these objects, also the use of of kind of the the videos and stuff, and and mm-hmm. that's something I think Spike Lee does um, really well is finding ways to kind of integrate montages into his stories, where you get these little bits and pieces of things, and uh, I I really enjoyed seeing the little. Little tiny clips scattered throughout the film, including one of his own, which I thought was great, throwing Malcolm X in there when he's right. actually saying, you know, his little speech about being bamboozled. Being bamboozled, yeah. I, I love that he has that in here. But the whole way that this film really comes to an end after after we see Sloan uh, shoot Delacroix and and kill him, and then you just get this this flurry of these images of from movies and TV shows and and just watching these these scenes of blackface and just how uh it just all of it the perspective ends up just feeling really difficult and and uh frustrating to kind of go through before ending on on Mantan doing some of his you know close-ups with his mm-hmm. face where he's kind of doing his hands the little jazz show. hands and oh it's just like the most horrific way uh ending a film like this it just really just hit everything home for me it really a uh, powerful way to to again in a film that is reminding you constantly of the cinematic constructs about all of it to then kind of thrust in all of this world of cinema and how it is this has been used throughout i found it to really be incredibly affecting so when do we get the sequel <laughs> right <laughs> bamboozle <laughs> two man tan's revenge man tan's revenge <laughs> how to do an award season though yeah this is the one that uh, it's it did not find its audience, and because of that, it had a hard time in the awards circles. That being said, it did get one win and 10 other nominations. The win it got was the at the National Board of Review, they gave it the Freedom of Expression Award, so that was nice. As for the other nominations at the Berlin International Film Festival, Spike Lee was nominated for the uh, Golden Berlin Bear, but lost that. At the Stinkers, the Bad Movie Awards, uh, one of our favorites, uh, Damon Wayans was actually nominated for uh, for Worst Actor, but lost. I can lost. totally see that. I can totally you know, imagine that. If somebody is not getting into this film, sure, I can yep. see that. Um, he did lose to John Travolta, who was in, uh, he was nominated for both Battlefield Earth and Lucky Numbers. Ah, uh, what a year for yeah, <laughs> Travolta. Rough. And uh, let's see, Jada Pinkett Smith was nominated at the Image Awards, the NAACP. She was nominated for Outstanding Actress in a Motion Picture, but lost to Santa Lathan in Love and Basketball. And uh, But the big one that they got a lot of nominations for was at the Black Reel Awards. It was nominated for seven awards, and it didn't win any. Uh, let's see, Best Picture, it lost to Love and Basketball. Hey, but Spike Lee produced it, so in a way, he still won. Yeah. He still won. Uh, it was nominated for Best Film Poster, which I, I that's one that I'm really like, oh, that's a great poster. I mean, I thought that poster really defined the movie well. Love and Basketball won that as well, however. The Best Soundtrack, 
lost to Love and Basketball. Best uh, Actress also lost again to Santa Lathan in Love and Basketball. Uh, Best Director lost to Gina Prince uh, Blythewood, Blythewood for Love and Basketball. I need to see that movie, apparently. Uh, let's see. Then we had uh, Spike Lee was uh, nominated for Best Original Screenplay, but uh, again, lost that to uh, The Visit. I am not familiar with that one, uh, written by Jordan Walker Perlman. And uh, let's see, last but not least, Tommy Davidson was nominated for Best Supporting Actor, but lost to Don Cheadle in Traffic. So wow. uh, so that, that was it. I mean, it's a, a lot of uh, nominations uh, you know, for a variety of things from the Black Reel Awards, but unfortunately, no wins there. Controversial film, didn't make any money. How to do it at the box office. Well, this goes back to uh, my question earlier. Who is he making this movie for? <laughs> Nobody who will pay. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently. Uh, considering the cheap filming format, Spike Lee did have a decent budget of $10 million to work with, which is about $14.9 million in today's dollars. The movie opened October 6th, 2000, on a fairly busy weekend full of limited and regular releases, including Bootmen, Dancer in the Dark, Digimon the Movie, Get Carter, Meet the Parents, and Tigerland. Even with a limited release on 17 screens, this film really had a hard time finding an audience, opening in spot 33. It eventually did expand to 243 screens around the country and ended up climbing up to spot 16 at its peak, but was only in theaters for about seven weeks before it was gone. The movie earned just under $2.3 million domestically and $189,000 internationally, giving it a total adjusted gross of $3.67 million. That puts it at an adjusted loss per finished minute of $83,000. Definitely a poor showing for the Spike Lee joint, but still, it was clearly a film saying something, and now more people will be finding it thanks to Criterion. That's right, and well-deserved uh, having a Criterion preservation of this thing. I think it better late than never. Definitely, I agree. Well, let's see what happens, Andy, when we take it to the mat and flick chart it. Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel. You'll see all the movies that we've talked about on this show. If you swipe over in your show notes and tap the word flickchart, it should take you straight to this film where you can add it to your list and see how it stacks up against ours. First up, Bamboozled or The Road Warrior. Well, that's a tough one to start with. Um, but I'm, Now, last, I, week, last week, I feel like I picked The Road Warrior. Yeah. And you picked to do the right thing. I did. I'm going to pick Bamboozled here. Probably moved to the top half properly. Um, I feel I, I feel like I'm in a place where I, I need to pick Bamboozled over the Road Warrior, even though I definitely would put the Road Warrior on first. I just feel like um, Bamboozled is just, I don't know, I find it to be such a strong and powerful film. So me Bamboozled too. for me. All right. That's a good start. Bamboozled or Raise the Red Lantern. Oh. That's a tough one. I didn't come up with that against against that in my own uh, ranking, but I would, uh, I would, I'm afraid I would say raise the red lantern. I will say raise the red lantern as well. God, there is a movie. I don't know why Criterion hasn't picked up some of those early Zhang Yimou films. Stunning. Yeah. Bamboozled or Star Trek Nemesis. Bamboozled. Bamboozled. Bamboozled or Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Eternal Sunshine. Eternal Sunshine. Man. I None know, of bamboozled. these came up in my personal flick chart, it's, man. This is why it's hard. It's an awful, awful tool. It's a terrible tool. <laughs> bamboozled or a league of their own. Uh, bamboozled. I will definitely put a league of their own on first. Um, 
because I just love that movie. But I will I will say bamboozled here. That surprises the hell out of me. <laughs> I know, I know. I, I end up finding this film more affecting than Do the Right Thing, actually. Oh, um, I do too. Yeah. Yeah. Let's go. Bamboozled or the Outlaw Josie Wales. Bamboozled for me. Yeah. Bamboozled or the Born Identity. I'm going to say bamboozled. If it was the second or third, I'd probably pick them. But it's the first one, which is my least favorite of the trilogy. So uh, this is one where I would definitely put Born on first, but I will also go with bamboozled. All right. Look at that. Bamboozled or Boogie Nights. Wow. Talk about a film that's also saying something that I relate to. Um, I'm going to say bamboozled. Okay. Bamboozled or Eternal Sunshine, we already did, so we're going to pick Eternal Sunshine again, and that leaves Bamboozled in spot 140 on our chart. 140 out of 443 films, which is about a 68%, a little bit low, but uh, it ran into that Raise the Red Lantern block pretty early on that kept it lower than uh, I would like. Yeah, me too. Uh, Boy, Raise the Red Lantern, that was a hard wall, but I, um, yeah, it feels too low, and my flick chart, represents where I think it should be. How did it end up on yours? Mine doesn't represent where I think it should be. <laughs> I wish it went higher, but, you know, these flick chart things. Uh, mine landed in spot 600 out of 4,300, which is an 86%. Wow. Okay. Well, mine landed uh, at spot 61. Wow, 61 out of 1439, which is a 96%. If I'm to go by that... Uh, recommendation over at letterbox.com slash the next reel, then I should be rating this a five-star film, and I'm going to do just that. Five stars and a heart for Bamboozled. I was incredibly moved by this movie, uh, and I recognize that it's production choices uh, are might be hard for others, but I really connected with what Spike Lee was doing here, and it just um, further cements my experience with his movies. So. Five stars and a heart for me, Andy. Yeah, five stars and a heart for me. Um, it was that way when I first saw it. I, and I, I would say that, well, I take it back. I think when I first saw it, I found I found I struggled connecting emotionally to the story. Um, this time watching it, I really connected emotionally to the story. But like I was saying about the protagonist, it wasn't with uh, Delacroix, uh, although other than sadness for kind of the trajectory of his life, but it was really with Mantan and Womack. Yeah, uh, just watching watching them, especially Mantan as as he uh, Man Ray, excuse me, as he was going through this, uh, uh, it was a very affecting thing. So, really interesting film. Um, I think it's one of Spike Lee's best films, and I'm glad we got a chance to talk about it on the show. Totally, me too. And with that, I can't believe it. We're weirdly closing out our Spike Lee series. Where are we going from here? Yeah, boy, these short series are, uh, <laughs> they're a lot of fun to do to get a lot out. But boy, they go quick. Uh, Black Klansman is our last uh, film that we'll be talking about from Spike Lee. This is his 2018 film that, uh, uh, you know, did pretty well for him. So I'm very much looking forward to chatting about this particular film next week. Me too. When the movie ends, our conversation begins.
Amazon giveth, Andrew. Except when it doesn't. Except when it doesn't. That was so good. You did it. It was just, we're just vamping here and you just, oh God, we should do a podcast together. Look, Let's do one. there was nothing in Amazon. And I think it speaks to how hard this movie is to find, uh, that there are five reviews in Amazon and they're all five-star reviews and they're all so serious. Oh, they take themselves so yeah. seriously. Would people go watch this movie and then give it some one-star reviews yeah, on Amazon? Really? Seriously. Just let let Amazon have it because the material available there sucks. Yeah. Uh, Even if it's just telling us how bad the quality right. is. Just tell Come us on. that's fine. It's fine. We're used to it by now. We're so used to it. <laughs> uh, so as it turns out, Common Sense Media also failed. No parents, no kids. What is going on? Why aren't people allowing 12-year-olds to watch this movie and review it online, Andy? We are failing as a culture that we don't system, have those kinds of reviews. The system is failing us, it that's for sure. It is a pattern interrupt for sure. So we went to our old favorite, letterbox.com, and uh, it turns out the nerds live there. That's where they all are. Lots of reviews of Bamboozled. And so we're going to do some there. What do you think? Page after page. I love it. Do you want me to go first? I do, so badly. I have a half-star review. So we get these even half-stars. <laughs> this is by Garrett McMahon, who watched it relatively recently. In fact, just a few weeks ago. He says, this movie includes a dictionary definition of satire in the beginning, so Lee could remind himself how to be funny, which he promptly forgets anyway. <laughs> oh, oh, incisive commentary. Well, I, Young Werner called and he's, you know, many people don't know that Young Werner Herzog is actually a massive fan of European minstrel shows, and he comes with sort of a, a an experience, and so he he actually has one that he would like to share. Um, uh, since this movie is about forty percent minstrel show, I would only recommend it to people who are fans of minstrel shows. In other words, nobody. Oh, <laughs> oh what a twist at the end! It turns out he's not a fan of minstrel shows. Oh, Werner. Werner, you glorious oddball. Thanks, Letterboxd. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today. 